You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Office of Hawaiian Affairs began a public relations campaign last year to rename the area Makaiavala Moana Hakuone. It was the first step in asking lawmakers to give them rights to develop residential units in Kaka'ako Makai. OHA also launched a media campaign to change public opinion about the area. The state gave OHA title to the land as part of a ceded land settlement with the idea it would have to lobby the legislature to get the zoning changed. Senator Sharon Moriaki uh, represents the Kaka'ako District, which is facing a turning point with the bill being heard this session. Moriaki and House Speaker Scott Psyche, who is from the district, submitted an opinion piece in the Star Advertiser this past weekend outlining their concerns. They have to do with environmental issues in the former landfill area where there are known toxic chemicals that could be disturbed. We talked to Moriaki this morning. Two incinerators are there. So it sits on toxic ash and soil with asbestos and PCB and anything that comes out of, you know, the the landfill. So they put a membrane on it, and they had a study in 2009 saying this is what you have to do to manage, which was what they did. You know, they put the soil down and and so on, and and there's a membrane that that protects it from leaching out into the the surrounding area. Right, it's a paved lot. Yeah, so the bill that came on the heels of A and B pulling back on, on building residential was to prohibit residential anything on the Mackay side of Alamoana Boulevard. Then the uh, developers, landowners, and the Malka side could build, but they would have then this open area for recreating and for people to use, not only those in Kaka'ako, but, you know, just like the People's Park in Alamoana. It, it was a lay of green that Governor Waihe actually envisioned to go from Aloha Tau all the way to Kapilani Park. So that was the vision and the Makai plan that came out of a lot of conversation with the community as a kind of aftermath of the whole protest from the community was the Makai plan, which included ideas like a cultural center, a marine center, a lot of community meeting places. So that was the concept of what would be good use of the land for the public. So come 20. 20- 12, when there was a negotiated settlement, and, and I wasn't here then, I was an advocate then, trying to keep the land open, and there was an agreement that was made, which we thought was, by the parties, agreeable to everybody, and so it went along. So the, the points I would make is that it still is a toxic brownfield. It needs to be addressed before anything is done. And that is what I've told my colleagues is that, you know, it's premature. You really need to look at what the community is saying, but also need to look at the facts. We have to clean it up, either remove it or keep it that way and find another solution. We have to get off of coming back to the table and constantly fighting about an issue that that really should be moving on to finding other land that's more appropriate for building affordable housing for our Native Hawaiians. And I think the other possibility now that the state has some funds this year is to perhaps get a cash award for the value of the land or what the settlement agreement was and have OHA find land that's more appropriate for what they need to build affordable housing or whatever they so choose to care for their beneficiaries. So I think that's the message I would give is let's get together. I mean, let's, you know, work together on finding solutions that work rather than constantly coming back and battling, I think, an issue that that really is premature to make any decision on. Well, I know that the Friends of Kiwalos has a meeting tonight to talk about the history of that area, and uh, I believe they have former uh, HCDA Director John Whalen on the agenda to talk about a possible land swap, and I understand that he's floating the idea of, you know, what about the Stadium Entertainment District? People do want to build housing there, but certainly we need to have some conversations about what could work. And you need a meeting of minds, you know, at the hearing last week, which was disturbing because all of this information came out about you need to do you know it's a state agency on state land you do need to have an environmental impact statement but in order to even trigger the environmental impact statement you need a master plan for those nine parcels which has not yet surfaced there's renderings and here's where we're going to build this but a true master plan on the Malka side 
and it has to go through the Hawaii Community Development Authority, which is the governing body on zoning for Kaka'ako. And so on the Mauka side, Howard Hughes, Kamehameha Schools, they have big parcels of land, which are those development projects, and they had to go before HCDA, and they had to do an EIS before HCD would entertain a review of their master plan. So that is really what has to happen before any discussion on, on changing the law. I think the changing the law might be circumventing good planning and zoning laws that are in place, which is disturbing as well. Where it is, it needs a meeting of minds that, okay, let's start looking at other places for us to, to build affordable housing. It could be you know, anywhere in the state where the state owns land. And it should be land that has infrastructure so they can immediately build instead of having to, you know, dig up toxic waste and find a place to put it and do an EIS, you know. So there's a lot of work before changing the law just like that. And that's the concern. I think both Speaker and I, you know, this is our district, but it's beyond that. It's good policy, good policy to do your homework before you change laws. Yeah, and you expressed some concern about spot zoning. Definitely. They have nine parcels, and you're going to just give OHA the right to build residential on their parcels. There are other landowners. Kamehameha Schools owns three. There's a government lands there, but there are other landowners, and you cannot have a private bill just to one, one beneficiary of that bill. So, yes, it is spot zoning. And the other issue that was raised is whether the housing that is planned for that area, if it could be truly affordable just because of federal you know, regulations about discrimination. So, yeah, it's complicated. It is complicated. And when you talk about the cost, if you look at that 2009 Limtiako study, it, they did some soil and groundwater, but not really intensely because it was based on there not being residential in the area. So based on their study, they looked at the places which were contaminated and they had a management plan that said you must do these kinds of remediation, which was done for like the, you see the asphalt in the parking lot under that. So that has a membrane or you see the, you know, the big mound that's there in Waterfront Park. They had to put um, pipes coming out so the methane could come out of the pipes because otherwise there were fires underneath because of the, the methane under the ground. So all of that is now encapsulated and has been but you start piling down into it to build housing, you know, you're going to be disturbing that membrane and it will seep into other areas, not only on land, but, you know, into the water. So the cost of it is going to be in the millions, hundreds of millions, in order to either remove that toxic waste. But if you remove that toxic waste, where do you put it? It's not an appropriate use of the land. You know, we need to find solutions that work, and I don't think it's been thought out that far. It's been estimated that there's about 1.56 million cubic yards of soil and ash underneath the protective covering there. And if you were to remove it, like nine cubic yards is one truckload. And what the planner tells me is that that's about maybe 175,000 truckloads. It's quite a bit. Yeah, that you have to remove. And where do you put it? Right. So, so those kinds of issues need to be discussed. And, you know, solutions found, if that's too expensive, then let's look at something that is more doable and appropriate and that we can actually solve the problem, i.e., let's house our native Hawaiians in housing they can afford. Right, and, and put it uh, somewhere where we can get the housing up faster. Yeah, something that you know has infrastructure already that is working, not, not where you've got to dig into the ground on the coastline. You're not sure what's going to be under there. All right, so you're hoping that there can be a meeting of the minds later I this week. I hope so. I, I really hope so, because this is, you know, we're one community. It's been too divisive, and we all like each other. We work with right. each other, but when it comes to this issue, it's been very difficult. 
That was State Senator Sharon Morawaki, who represents the Kaka'ako area. We talked with her this morning. House Speaker uh, Scott Psyche also represents the district. We hope to hear more from him tomorrow. The two lawmakers are calling for a meeting of the minds to possibly explore other options. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okawa, oa, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we delve into the long history of the Hawaiian Islands accepting immigrants, dating back to the days of the monarchy. Hawaii has a tradition of attracting advisors and laborers to the islands from abroad. And at no time was this more prevalent than in the plantation era, when workers in the thousands came from Europe, Asia, the Americas, and other Pacific Island nations. In 1903, a group of 103 Koreans landed in the territory of Hawaii, becoming the first Korean immigrants to the United States. States. Among their number were 56 men recruited to work the sugarcane fields, 21 women, and 25 children. They arrived aboard a British flagged ship, and today we are looking for its name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from Hawaii Public Radio. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. Effective today, Hawaiian Telecom has discontinued carrying HPR along with all other local radio stations. You can listen to HPR on HawaiiPublicRadio.org, our free HPR mobile app, your smart speaker, or on the radio. Please direct your comments to Hawaiian Telecom at 877-482-2211. No one disputes that we need more affordable housing, but how do we get there? Today we talk about a law in the books called 201H. It's a way to fast-track residential development. And here to talk about it is HPR reporter Casey Harlow. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I was very curious about this 201H law, mainly because here here on Oahu, we see a lot of uh, discussion being had about 201H, um, a lot of community opposition, or, you know, just discussions about uh, whether or not a project really fits within a neighborhood, uh, especially projects uh, that, you know, will be a lot of help for uh, affordable housing. So I spoke with uh, one state senator, Senator Stanley Chang, uh, who is introduced, who has introduced a handful of measures which would change the 201H process. Uh, I've noted that in a previous show here on The Conversation, as Senate Bill 338, which would uh, basically consolidate four state housing agencies into a Department of Housing, and that would... Uh, allow the housing director to decide where projects are developed on state lands. And uh, also, this bill is up for discussion tomorrow at 1 p.m. That's one that I've highlighted today in today's story. But another couple of ones that really caught my eye are Senate Bills 872 and 332. So Senate Bill 332 would single out state lands along the rail route for dense housing developments. This would pretty much avoid any opposition of building uh, these projects within uh, neighborhoods such as, like, say, Salt Lake or, you know, in Kalihi. Uh, But the measure would also do something else. It would prohibit the city from restricting housing density in any way. And so it would enable for those very targeted portfolio of lands that are near rail stations, so they're 
primarily going to be reliant on the rail rather than cars along the already traffic clogged highways, that we can create these new high density neighborhoods without displacing anybody else. We're not going to be redeveloping any existing neighborhoods. These are all state owned parcels, none of which really have housing on them right now and create these neighborhoods of the future that will be high density, that will be affordable to local people that can be restricted because the state, of course, can restrict the use of its lands only for Hawaii residents that are owner occupants who own no other real property. It doesn't have to maximize profit, so it doesn't have to sell units for millions of dollars. And it's worth noting that a main thing uh, that this 201H law does is exempt uh, projects from a lot of uh, county uh, restrictions, zoning, density, uh, you name it. Uh, Basically, as long as it fits within the parameters of this law, developers could get exemptions from it. But as well, this uh, the challenges to this law include, you know, there's a little bit more time to for developers to consider what projects uh, would fit within it. Some uh, I spoke with Grant Chang, no relation to the senator of Lowney Architecture. Uh, basically, he said that it adds um, it's nothing too unreasonable. Developers don't want something that or propose something that is unreasonable in a specific uh, parcel of land, uh, but. As long as they fit within this uh, parameters, which is uh, 50% of the units plus one uh, for affordable housing, they could qualify for this law. Uh, Another thing that uh, really caught my eye was uh, Senate Bill 872. Uh, This would ensure projects are owned and occupied by residents who own no other real property. So this um, basically, instead of that 50 plus one, 100% of the affordable housing would then uh, be uh, for residents. Uh, this Senator Chang basically says this would prevent the tar- dark towers that you see like in town here on Oahu. Uh, this would also give the Hawaii Housing Finance and Development Corporation to develop certain housing projects exempt from these rules and uh, other things as well. Uh, but... Asking Senator Chang, basically, you know, the reasons why he wants to streamline certain aspects of this 201H law, because it's very complex. There's a lot of work that has to go into projects that apply for this. Not only that, there's a lot of oversight of these projects and basically streamlining the process or even making any changes to it could have a lot of impacts as well. And so this is basically Senator Chang explaining why he's wanting to do this. We are now in year six of population decline. We have about 15,000 Hawaii residents leaving the state every year now, which is now more than the number of babies that are born in the state of Hawaii. We are telling our young people, it's great that you were born and raised and educated here, but now that you're an adult, you have to leave and you cannot come back and you will never be able to have a home here because that is a decision that we are making by not permitting new housing to be built for you. I think that that is the greatest tragedy and the greatest public policy problem in Hawaii today. And that's why I've been fighting so hard to ensure that we never have to say that again to another young person. Yeah, I know so many people who have just gone back to the mainland to visit their grandkids, right? Because their their kids don't live here anymore. Exactly. And, uh, you know, you hear stories about it every day of, you know, uh, so-and-so in your family is moving away because, you know, the cost of living is too much. So Senator Chang is hoping to streamline the 201H process to allow more affordable housing to go through. Uh, Not only that, but uh, the benchmark uh, that he has is 10,000 units a year uh, to be built. Uh, that's about the average in order to meet the demand, current demand and the future demand as well. So okay. we'll see what happens. All right. Yeah, we'll see how uh, uh, how these various bills uh, progress during the session. But thanks so much. Thank you. That was Casey Harlow, who is helping to track issues at the legislature this session. Look for his story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Barbara Hort, author of Hollow Crown of Fire, 
Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about discovering the meaning in the coronavirus pandemic and its predecessors. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Chamber Music Hawaii, celebrating 40 years. The Honolulu Brass Quintet performs Leonard Bernstein's Suite for Brass, February 26th at Paliku Theater. Tickets at chambermusichawaii.org. Civil Beats lead story today is about the lack of electric vehicle chargers at Honolulu's airport, new rental car facility. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today for our reality check. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, your story, I'm like, only has one charging station. How are they (laughs) charging up all their EVs? I don't get it. Yeah, well, they told us, a couple of workers said, yeah, we're using the slow chargers for this fleet of Teslas that Avis has now. But no, they they didn't put any charging stations in when they originally built this $377 million facility. It's a beautiful building, if you haven't been over there, um, across from from the airport uh, terminal. And it's... um, Again, they they built it, but no charging stations, so the companies are having to come in and do it now. Yeah, and I know the state refers to that as the Conrack building, right? It is. It's it's gorgeous, but um, yeah, it's kind of a head-scratcher. Yeah, so I think the idea was, when we talked to the Department of Transportation, they said, well, the idea was just to put in the electrical capacity for uh, the companies to come in and charge them themselves, uh, and or install the chargers themselves. Uh, however, there is a bill that uh, Representative Nicole Lowen has introduced to, said, look, to say, look, whenever we build a new state building, we want to put in either chargers or have uh, charger-ready parking stalls. So go beyond simply the load capacity of, of for the building of electricity, but actually have uh, charger-ready stalls. It would be a lot more than what they're doing here. And again, that's mostly for workers. So when work state workers go there and they have electric cars, they can charge their vehicles while they're uh, at work. Uh, but it's also, it would have the extra impact of affecting a building like this. So if the state does build another Conrack, uh, if this law pass, if this bill passes, there would have to be charger-ready uh, stalls or chargers uh, there. So how many um, new chargers are they going to have to build at this car rental place? Well, that's a good question. It, it's not known now. Um, Hertz has ordered a bunch of chargers. Um, and Avis apparently has ordered some too, but right now the only charger is one by the company 6T Rental uh, Cars, and they, it has one charger. The airport didn't know what type of charger it was, whether it was a level one or level two charger, uh, but that's it. There are some on Maui already, uh, but really that's it uh, for now. And again, Hertz has plans to install 12 level two chargers. Well, you know, and I can see as they look down the road, right? I mean, we just got done with the story where they're talking about you know, fast-tracking affordable housing projects along the rail route on state land. Um, but, yeah, you kind of wonder, you know, I sure hope they're they're planning on a lot more EV chargers. Yeah, well, that's the point of, of the article in a way. It, it, there are a number of bills, and what prompted to, us to this idea and, and what was going on, there are a number of bills that really are trying to plan for the future, a time when there are more EVs on the road, so requiring charging station or capacity in various facilities, like I said, including the state facility one. Also, maybe requiring new homes to be EV charger ready. So a new owner, if they want to get an electric car, doesn't have to go back and pay a fortune to uh, install a bunch of EV infrastructure um, as well as the charger. So, yeah, that's the idea, really planning for the future. Should it be mandated? Well, that's going to be for the legislature to decide. But this is an example of the kind of thing where they say, you know, this is why we should do this. This is why we really should require that we plan for the future. And the state, as Representative Lowen said, uh, the state really should set an example. 
Well, you know, we are hearing, you know, that more people are uh, buying into this EV idea and are looking to switch off those gas-powered, you know, guzzlers. Um, but, boy, there's got to be that infrastructure. Yeah, and that is that is true. I mean, y- your point is exactly shown by the statistics. There, there were a bunch of... Uh, electric vehicles bought um, over the course of the last year, something like almost 5,000 vehicles. It's not a ton. We have over a million cars on the road total, but 5,000 electric vehicles bought last year is a lot. So that shows there is an appetite for these. But as you point out, you need a place to charge them. Yeah, yeah. Well, my neighbor just bought a a, a new EV, so (laughs) I'm I'm jealous. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. Stuart Yurton covers business stories for Honolulu Civil Beat. You can read the EB story at civilbeat.org. This Saturday, HPR presents Homaikai. This in-person show is a part of HPR's Mele Hawaii concert series at our Atherton studio in Honolulu. Halehaku Siberi Akaka, Hoku Zudermeister, and Malie Lyman join Homaikai for this intimate performance. Purchase your tickets online at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. For the first time in two years, the Hawaii Association of the Blind will be holding its 56th annual convention in person here on Oahu. The organization was established in 1967 and advocates for our state's blind residents, as well as provides services. HPR's Dave Lawrence talked with association member Vicki Kennedy about the upcoming event and what the results of a recent census reveals about those living with vision impairment in our islands. Vicki, welcome and thank you for doing this. Aloha, Dave, and thank you so much for having me today and uh, for the opportunity to do some outreach to your audience. So thank you. You are very welcome. And and that's a great point to sort of for a lot of folks, they may not know who the organization is or how you work to support people who are blind or who have vision disabilities. So give a little introduction to who you guys are. Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, the Hawaii Association of the Blind was founded in 1967. And this is our 56th annual convention. And the Hawaii Association of the Blind is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And it is also an affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. That's ACB. And what HAB has been doing all these years was to reach out to the members or reach out to people with visual impairment, giving them the independence and the confidence to become productive members of the community. I've been to some of these conventions and have been able to realize how inspiring it can be. There's also an aspect of your support you offer through education, training, assistive Mm -hmm. technology, and talk a little bit about that. Sure, I'd be happy to. With the training, we have the orientation and the mobility, and this is for those who are wanting to use the cane So they get the training with the cane and orientation to the sidewalks. The cane travel is very important for the blind. And of course, there's cane travel as well as guide dog travel. But in order to get a guide dog, you must know cane travel pretty darn well because guide dogs won't know addresses, but you have to know where to go so that you can ask and give a command to your guide dog. And as far as assistive technology is concerned, there are training sessions on the iPhone, which is really a terrific, terrific instrument for Mm -hmm. all of us. I was a little intimidated by using the iPhone before, but now I won't give it up. And the other thing is the computers, to learn how to do voice over computers and other reading devices such as the Victor Stream, where we can download books from NLS Bard, podcasts, and I even have your HPR 
right here on my podcast so I can listen to it wherever I go. And of course, we have all the Braille computers and instruments that are for those who read Braille. So we have all of those. And talk about how the HAB has also helped improve pedestrian safety through the recent work with the Department of Transportation. Oh, yes. I'm really excited about it because they are aware of the dangers on the road, as as you are too, even as a sighted person. And to that point, recently, we have been very successful in getting the Department of Transportation to work with us. And we're going to be having various crosswalks in town to have more audible pedestrian signals. And this will be between the city hall and our state capitol campuses. And you know how busy that can be from Baritania down to King Street. Yeah, We're going to have some signals in there. So that will really help us to be safe. Well, that's a form of advocacy that no doubt folks will hear about at the convention. And uh, so dialing in on this event, it's going to be March 4th, Ala Moana Hotel in Honolulu. Now, first for folks, is there a cost to attend this, Vicki? For the members, we have the dues for our members, but we want to do outreach with those who might be interested in the Hawaii Association of the Blind. They will only pay for the meals. So, uh, you know, as... COVID hit us, everything has gone up. So the cost of the meals for breakfast, lunch, and the dinner will be around $110. So that's the cost to attend for anyone? Yeah, it will be. And describe Mm -hmm. the event itself in terms of anything about it you want to share with not only the agenda throughout the day, but how it can help inspire, educate, and inform. Yes. Okay. So first of all, it starts at 9 in the morning, but breakfast is from 730. But the theme for this year's convention is Together We Can, colon, honoring the past, treasuring the present, and influencing the future. And we are going to have a gentleman from the American Council of the Blind, who is our guest speaker, and he is going to tell us how we can even more advocate for the blind and how we can do more outreach and working together so that we can reach more people to give them the confidence and the independence that is so needed. And always inspiring to hear those chats from folks who come from the national organization and more on the convention itself. And so after our lunch from about 1.15 on, we'll have more of the business meeting of the Hawaii Association of the Blind. And we will also have reports from the Library of the Blind and Print Disabled. We'll have a gentleman from I Can Connect, and that deals with the deaf-blind members. Mm. Also, the Ho'opono Center for the Blind, and also the vocational rehab side. Also from the orientation and mobility instructor. And then we will have a two-hour break from about 3.30, and then come back at 5.30. Then the banquet begins with cocktails. We will have the proclamations from our governor, mayor, senators, and awards will be given to some of our teachers of visually impaired and others as well. So it's going to be a full day of information and uh, hope for everyone. And also thinking about uh, the convention and the broader community of folks who are either blind or have vision disabilities, speak to some of the things you learned from the recent census. The Recently, the 2020 census show that we have 25,000 visually impaired and blind individuals here in the state of Hawaii. Huh. And unfortunately, Many of our old customs have tried to shelter the blind and because of different customs too, you know, they just try to hide the individuals with disabilities. And I can say that because I am mostly of Japanese ancestry and uh, these things happen. And so we'd like to reach out to them and we understand what they're going through and we want to give them more independence so they can become more comfortable with themselves and with others. 
Uh, it's a very inspirational message. Folks can get more information themselves on both the event and uh, for contacting you guys to make plans to attend. The website is the website is hawaii.acb.org, hawaii.acb.org. And uh, do I have this right, uh, Vicki? If folks want to attend the convention, they can call you directly to make uh, yes. arrangements. And that would be 808-222-8862. Again, 808-222-8862. And mm-hmm. uh, we've been thrilled today to be speaking with Vicki Kennedy, member of the Hawaii Association of the Blind, and speaking with us ahead of their 56th annual convention this year. And after the COVID influence of the past couple of years, the convention was held virtually. So this is the first one since the COVID pandemic made it go virtual. It's going to be Saturday, March 4th, Ala Moana Hotel. Really grateful to get to have you on. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, grateful for all the things that you do for folks. Thank you so much, Dave. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Vicki Kennedy talking with HPR's Dave Lawrence about the Hawaii Association of the Blind's upcoming convention. Uh, we'll have a link to more information on how to attend on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Backyard Quiz, we were looking for the name of the ship that carried the first group of Korean immigrants to Hawaii in the United States. The ship was operated by the Occidental and Oriental Steamship Company and brought its history-making passengers to Honolulu in January of 1903. 102 men, women, and children disembarked, becoming the first Korean immigrants in the U.S. But they would be followed by more than 7,000 of their countrymen over the next five years, the vast majority of whom were men. Emigrating to the United States was seen as attractive by many Koreans who were seeking to modernize their homeland. Many Korean immigrants would continue onto the continent and settle in California, but it all started with that first group aboard the RMS Gaelic. The Gaelic sailed across the Pacific between 1885 and 1907 when it was retired and dismantled. And congrats to our winner today, Patricia Park from uh, Makiki. You got it right. Uh, that's today's quiz. If you'd like uh, to share one, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. One of the areas of health needs that is often overlooked is our prisoner population and how to protect them from the exposure and quick spread of disease. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a couple of experts about the current state of health in the judicial system and what needs to be done to protect all of us. That's tonight at 6.30 on The Body Show. Theater at Windward Community College plays host to a production entitled I Hula. It won an award when it debuted in 2016. Ryan Oki Okinaka wrote the play, which is about four women trying to overcome their fears, pride, and insecurities to discover the true meaning of the dance. The conversation Stephanie Hahn spoke with Okinaka about its genesis. He's a recipient of the Hawaii Conservatory of Performing Arts Emerging Island Artist Program and is a lecturer at Windward Community College. And keep an eye on your sisters, ah, Aswahine. We gotta protect each other. Remember, words first, 
But if words fail, put that hair in one bun and get ready for scrap. <laughs> and don't forget, we miss Aloha Hula on stage, but we titters on the street. <laughs> I love you, Mayubupono. Aloha. More than 10 years ago, my brother, Nathan Okinaka, started a halal. It's called Hula Halal Kavaile Hua. And for one of his earliest hoikes, he had asked me to write scenes, like short scenes that would tie in all his hula numbers. So, you know, instead of like a, having an MC on stage to say like, oh, the next number we're going to be performing is entitled Mauna Leo, you know, and what the song's about, he asked me to write theatrical scenes for me and my friends to act out. So I did, and I essentially created a hula play. It was a really great story about a tutu who passed away and her grandkids kind of all honoring her spirit. So yeah, we put that whole show together and we all came together in Waikiki at the Queen Kapilani Hotel and we started the show. We got maybe 15 minutes into it and we got word that there was a tsunami advisory (laughs) and yeah, (laughs) and that Waikiki should be evacuated to higher ground, anyone who didn't need to be there. So literally 20 minutes into the show, we stopped it abruptly before any of those scenes could actually be told. So none of the story was told, and the tsunami never actually came. I remember I sat in my hotel room because we were staying at the hotel, and I was watching the ocean, and it never changed, thankfully, thankfully. But it still managed to wash away the entire show. So we're really heartbroken by that. So... A year went by and I decided to take all of those scenes and I guess turn it into something a bit more substantial. Before that, I had never written a full-length play, so I just took it and I just started writing and it all just kind of came together and before I knew it, I had a full-length play called I Hula. I put it in the hands of an artistic director, Harry Wong, who was from Kumukua Theater, and a year after that, it was being produced at the theater. Did you study playwriting? Mm-hmm. So my background, I started as an actor, so I started learning acting at LCC. I did a bunch of plays there for a few years, and then I did uh, a bunch of plays at Kumukua Theater. I always wanted to do more, you know, so I was able to assist and direct under Harry Wong. I'm an improviser, so I've been studying and performing improv for more than 10 years now. So that's all of my training. I never went to class to be a playwright. I never thought I wanted to be a playwright until I wrote a play, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess I'm a playwright. (laughs) Are you also a dancer? Are you part of your brother's halal? Yes. uh, No. (laughs) I am not. Okay. Yeah. So give me a little bit of background Um, about this. Yeah. How did you get into the mind of a dancer? Yeah. It's funny. I danced a hula song in high school because I was uh, part of the Mayday Court. And then when my brother's halal became a halal, I knew if ever I wanted to dance hula, I would have to dance under my brother, which is uh, something I didn't want to do. (laughs) I didn't want to have to take commands from my brother. So yeah, I never danced hula, but our family was just always involved in hula because my brother created a halal. So that's my connection to hula, is through my family's connection to it. Because without having to dance hula, this play, I suppose, is my way of giving back to hula. You revived the play. Mm-hmm. How was the production different than the first time? Yeah. So the play first got produced in 2016, and since then... Tori decided to produce it in 2021, kind of like in the midst of the pandemic. So at the time, we couldn't have an audience, you know, so it was being filmed and it was beautiful, right? But the girls didn't really have an audience to play to and that's such a huge element of theater, right? We need that connection with the audience. I asked, I asked Tori actually, I was like, Tori, can we do it again? And she graciously said yes. I found out that they were going to produce it again about a year ago and at the time I knew, I knew that I really wanted to address certain issues that I had with the script. There's a lot of things I wasn't quite happy with and I had the time. They gave me the time to be able to kind of go in and rewrite a lot of things. The second act flowed a little differently in the original version and I didn't really like how rapidly it kind of got to the end so I really got to go in and like dig in and find better moments and and make make more realistic choices for the characters to make and uh yeah I think I'm really happy with the with what became of it there is an actor in this play an actress and she was in the first play is that right so can you tell me a little bit about the performers Mm -hmm. were they in your brother's hello are they dancers first and then actors Mm -hmm. 
So Buffy, Lele Wong, she was in the original production in 2016. She played actually one of the girls in the play. She was one of the girls in the Halal, Pumehana. We asked her to, to come in and do this show, and I asked her to be the Kumu, which is odd because she's way too young to play the Kumu, but with the theater magic, you know, we were able to age her, and now she's playing the Kumu. But yeah, beyond that, I think, I think Tama might have had some hula background. Buffy definitely has hula background, but as for the other girls, a lot of them never had any real background in hula, so they all kind of had to immerse themselves in the art form, specifically for this play. And they did it magically. They look like a halal. It's beautiful. Yeah, it was awesome. What is it that you're hoping people take mm. from this play about hula? You're presenting a play. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between presenting a play about hula mm-hmm. and then going to see hula? Ooh. Wow, that's a great question. I've always been very interested in generations, like whether you're a millennial or baby boomer or Gen X. I've always been really interested in generations and their respective responsibilities towards society. <laughs> so I always, I, what I did with this play was I said to myself, like me as a millennial, so these girls represent, you know, this younger generation, um, eventually it will be their turn to take on the traditions and the legacy that our ancestors are kupuna passed down, right? Or if we don't acknowledge how important of a job that is, it damages our culture, right? It damages our traditions. It could eliminate an entire culture. So that's what I really wanted to to showcase in this play. It's this idea that we as a younger generation have this responsibility to carry on the legacy of our kupuna um, through the traditions that our families passed down from one to the next. What I hope people will come and see this show, what I hope they take away is understanding what their connection to their culture would be and how important it is to practice those cultures because that's what gives our that's what gives our culture life. I also appreciated how you showed the conflict about different kinds of people studying hula and what that meant and the interpretations and how people felt about that. Mm -hmm. Without ever having to be a hula dancer, like I do deeply understand that hula is an art form that's practiced by everyone, not just Hawaiians, right? It's such an inclusive art form. Um, I really wanted to showcase that here in this play. You know, there's a character that's played by a white actress and the character is white from the continent, you know, and she, for whatever reason, has fallen in love with the Hawaiian culture and is a great hula dancer. And it is absolutely her right to be able to do that, right? It's like she's so respectful and so in love with the culture that she practices something that is so innately Hawaiian, but it's absolutely okay because she loves it, right? And that's what I love about hula. Like, whether you're Hawaiian or you're Japanese or you're Chinese or Caucasian, you know, it's an art form that can be cherished and loved and practiced by everyone. I find hula to be very much a spiritual practice. Mm. What do you think about that? And are you hoping that that's also what people get from this play when they come? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... Hula, it touches on so many different levels, right? Like the melee itself, the story that the melee tells um, has deeper meaning, right? Like there's songs that talk about, like Papalina Lahi Lahi, right? It's about rosy cheeks, right? It's often performed by little kids, right? But um, it's just a, it's a cute song about showing off your rosy cheeks. But really, if you look at the counter, rosy cheeks could mean a lot of different things. Um, that's what I love about hula, right? There's so many levels, there's so many different meanings. And it's such a... It's such a pure form of, of storytelling you know and if you really like dig down into the language and understand what the meaning behind the hula is you know the importance of the motions and the way that in which it, it's performed it all means something you know what about any future works do you think that they will be also inspired by hula Ooh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely want to write another hula play down the line. I'm working on a couple of things, nothing really involving hula right now, though. <laughs> I think my biggest fear in 2016 when the play first premiered was that a lot of people were going to question my background, right? I'm not a hula dancer. I don't actively practice hula, but here I am writing a play about hula. So that was my biggest fear, is what would the hula community think about this play? And I was pleasantly surprised about how graciously they received it. 
and how much they, I guess, saw their halal in the story. They saw their kumu. They saw their own experiences. It, it brought up things about about their life. You know, a lot of these, a lot of people dance hula when they're children, and then they stop for whatever reason, and then life takes on, and then they just put that hula part of their life away. And this play brought that back to them, right? They, and they kind of rekindled their love for the art form. And I've heard that a lot of them kind of went back to halal because it inspired them to, to take it up again. And I also think a lot about hula as a sisterhood. Mm. You know, you have hula sisters. Yeah. And you were able to go into the mind of a group of women. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a play primarily about women. Yes. And wanted to know, can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I wrote this play... And I wrote these characters, and never once did I stop to think, like, oh, I'm a man writing a play about women. I just never thought of it. I never, I, that didn't cross my mind. It was never a thing to me. I just wrote people, you know, and experiences. And a lot of the experiences that these girls go through in the play is things that I went through as a person. Like, Pumehana is very self-conscious about her body. Um, that's, just, that's just an element that I struggled with as a person growing up, you know? And I put that into her story, and and never once did I really think that this is innately something that women go through, right? It's everyone. Everyone goes through that. Like Kanani, right? Kanani is just this little girl who wants to be 30 tomorrow. But she's not. She's a little girl. And she needs to be proud to be a little girl and enjoy her life. And there's this idea that she always gets left behind. And that's because I'm the youngest of my family. I felt <laughs> that. I felt like I always got left out of things because right. I was so young. This is great. I really enjoyed the show. I hope a lot of people come out to see it. And I'm very interested in seeing what you'll be writing in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for coming. Well, that was HPR Stephanie Han speaking with Ryan Oki Okinaka about his play, I Hula. It opened this past weekend at Paliku Theater at Windward Community College and runs through uh, February 19th. Ihula first premiered at Kumukahua Theater in 2016 and was recognized for excellence in writing by the Hawaii State Theater Council. Well, that's it for us today. Later today, we plan to sit down with Big Island Mayor Mitch Roth. We'll bring you that interview tomorrow. We've been talking a lot about the Kaka'akumakai issue. Share your thoughts with us. Call or talk back line. Record something. 808-792-8217. And a reminder, you can find the conversation online on our website later today or check out the podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.